Sometimes when I'm approaching a conversation, I'll have an idea in my mind of what the theme might end up being. And that was the case with Steven. Steven spent 19 years in a federal prison because of a nonviolent drug charge. And during that time, he spent over a year in solitary confinement. However, in that space, he had experiences with God and the Holy Spirit so powerful that sometimes he misses that period of his life. I thought we may end up spending time talking about how we can experience God's fullness even in solitude, but God took the conversation in an unexpected direction. We talked about solitude. We talked about fasting. But more than all of that, we talked about the power of the Holy Spirit. And I realize it's vital for us to touch on this during this season focused on sitting and suffering. After all, there are plenty of ways to navigate suffering that aren't Christian-based. There are tactics, techniques, mindsets, things that can help you get through your suffering without having to go to God. So what does God bring to the table in the midst of suffering? How does trusting God and the Spirit lead to abundantly more than we could have found with the best self-help book? How does the Spirit change everything? Stephen and I both believe the Spirit does and can do so for your situation today. You're listening to episode 150 of the Where Did You See God podcast. Father God, I just want to thank you that you are God and you are good. And I just thank you for bringing Stephen and I together. We've never connected before, but you've brought us together in some really clear ways. And I really believe that there's important stuff that you want to bring out in this time, whether it's for us or for others. I just had this clear sense that there are some things that haven't been touched on in this series that I feel like you want to bring out. And so to that end, we just want to release ourselves to you, our thoughts, our words, our responses. We want to give it all to you because we want you to be honored and glorified. And we really believe that you could do abundantly more with it than we ever could. So take our words and our thoughts, take this time, be honored and glorified by it. And we thank you in advance for how we believe you will work. All this in prayer in holy and precious name. Amen. So Stephen, one of the things that I'm really excited about with this conversation is I just told you a moment ago that I've been trying to end this series for a while (laughs) and God keeps on keeping it going. And I'm fine with that. I'm game for that. But I wasn't looking for new guests. And then you reach out to me. And what's interesting about that is I felt the sense that, yep, I should go ahead and connect with Stephen, make this happen. And the moment I sent you a message, I get a text from someone named Mahal from Come to Jesus podcast, which you've been on. And she had recently reached out to me about something else. But right after I sent you a message, she's like, have you connected with Steven Snook yet? And I'm like, I've literally just messaged him. She's like, oh, man, I think his message would be really good for your podcast. So it was one of those moments that's like, yeah, it could be coincidence. But this is quite a coincidence for her to mention your name out of all names right after I messaged you. And so It makes me encouraged about what God might be up to in this time. But before we jump in, you know, for anyone listening, what would you want them to know about who you are as we start this conversation? A very quick and short version, brother. I was born into extreme poverty. My mother put my brother and myself out by the street. Mm -hmm. She had two children by the time she was 15 years old. My brother was a year and a half older than me. So when she had me when she was 15, she already had two kids. She put us out by the street. We were taken into foster care, then taken by distant relatives and my brother's family to Illinois. And my life was just extreme poverty. I became a drug smuggler. I became a drug dealer at 15. By the time I was 19, I was a drug trafficker. Mm -hmm. I began to take on that image. I was in a life of crime, brother. I was beaten and abused as a child, 100%, just absolute chaos, no church background, none of that stuff. You know, by the time I was 21, I had convictions in multiple categories. I was a drug trafficker. I had grand larceny. I had a conviction for having a girlfriend that was 17 when I was 21. My life was a felony every day. Mm. When I turned 21, I got indicted by the DEA. I got caught with a little bit over six kilos of cocaine. My minimum sentence was going to be 22 years in federal prison. Mm. And I was still a gangster. I'd been to prison before. I didn't care. Probably five months into that stretch, I sent my youngest brother on a mission. He got in a high-speed police chase. He was throwing guns outside of the car, running from the cops, him and his friends were, and they got in a car accident, and it was a devastating car accident. When I found out about a week later, he was on life support. They didn't know if he would make it or not. He was completely crushed, and I gave my heart to the Lord, and that's when I got born again. I gave my heart to Jesus, and brother, I didn't even know what I was doing. Mm. Man. 
there's so much in there. We could just do a whole Steven series talking about this suffering stuff, because when we think about this idea of sitting and suffering, each of those topics, abandonment, foster care, imprisonment, all these things could be rich with conversation. But as you've been thinking about this conversation and this idea of sitting and suffering and connecting with God in the midst of that, what's God been putting on your heart? Well, bro, I'm going to tell you what, when you're in darkness and when you're living in darkness, even the moments that you believe should be the highlights of your career, when I would have three or $400,000 in cash and beautiful women and fancy cars and things like that, those were the most memorable and miserable moments of my life. Mm. Now, I will fast forward for you about 15 years into 2017. I did 377 days in solitary confinement. Mm. And at that time, I was already born again in 2003. I'd received the baptism of the Holy Spirit in 2004. So I'd been walking with the Lord and I just had some absolutely incredible Holy Spirit stories where men were coming to the Lord through my ministry inside of prison and things like that. But in 2017, when I did all that time in solitary confinement, I was in a cell by myself with a Bible in a former supermax federal security prison where officers had been assassinated right outside of my bars, wow. where men are cutting themselves with razor blades, and it's absolutely a playground for the enemy. And I was in just extreme fasting and prayer during that time. I would fast at least 30 hours every week. Some weeks, I would just go all seven days and just fast, and I would pray for four or five hours a day. So this is a moment that's supposed to be the most miserable moment in my life. This is supposed to be the suffering. And I would be in that cell dancing with joy for the Lord in my heart. And I'll tell you why. I couldn't see the men around me, but I could yell out through the bars and preach to those men. Mm. What it started out as a little dribble, just questions about the Bible, turned into full-fledged Bible studies and preaching within months. Mm. Within three or four months, probably a quarter of my tear was born again and saved. Mm. Within six months, two of the men back there had received the baptism in the Holy Spirit and were speaking in tongues and didn't even know what was going on. Mm -hmm. So the power of God was falling in one of the darkest places in the United States. This place is so dark. There's no air conditioning there in this humidity in the Illinois summer. At three o'clock in the morning, you're sitting on the end of your bed and sweat's just rolling yeah. off your body. Yeah. This is a pit of darkness. The light of Jesus was able to shine into that pit and dispel the darkness. Men back there were leaving brother radically changed. So there's a moment where it's intended to be suffering. And there was more joy back there in that moment. There was so much joy back there, brother, that I miss it. Mm -hmm. And my life is going great now. You know, I've been out for nine months and you know a little bit about my story and all the doors that God's opening. And I still miss those moments from that time and that closeness. And I didn't really have a reference point for that. Just to give you an idea, I was just like, wow, I miss that, Lord. I miss those moments with you because out here you're busy. In there, I had opportunities. It was nothing for me to say, hey, you know what? I think I'm going to go on a four-day fast, Lord, and just pray for four or five hours a day because I didn't have the responsibilities that a man does so I could draw as close to the Lord. I fasted one time for seven days, specifically just asking for the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Hmm. Now, who has the opportunity to do that unless you're living in a monastery or you're able to just get away? But then I came across a book not long ago, a New York Times bestseller from a lady that survived the Rwandan genocide. Mm. And she was locked in a three by four bathroom for 91 days with like six other women. Mm. Now that she's famous and she's in the United States and her testimony is getting out there, she actually talked about missing those moments in that bathroom mm -hmm. because you had to be silent. Mm -hmm. So you couldn't speak because you didn't want the people committing the genocide to hear you in their hiding. And so she would spend all that time with the Lord. And I thought, wow, that's amazing that I'm connecting with this woman in such a way. It's like that too in the Bible. You know, Peter went up on the mountain, transfiguration. He wasn't one to leave. Mm -hmm. He said, man, should I build some tabernacles up here? You know what I mean? This is like the greatest thing ever. I'm so close to God. So it's interesting because in that moment that was supposed to be so much suffering, there was so much light and joy in me that it was contagious and able to get on some of society's worst reprobates. Yeah. You know what I mean? Just, yeah. just really awesome time, man. Yeah. You know, it's interesting in what you just shared. You simultaneously tapped into a recurring theme and tapped into something that seems to be the opposite of a recurring theme. So here's what you did here. The recurring theme has been this idea that what should have been the worst moments, what should have been the worst suffering for so many people has ended up being one of the most important moments of their life, one of the moments where they felt the closest to God, right? And they wouldn't trade it for anything because of how much it helped them to understand who God is and how real God is for them, right? What you just shared is this recurring theme. But the thing that seems to be the opposite, and this is interestingly what God brought to my mind before we even started talking. I was thinking about this episode and out of nowhere, this thought came to my mind. 
that in all of the conversations, there is this theme of community. There is this theme of connection. When I ask guests, if you could talk to someone who's in the midst of suffering, what would you say? So many of them say, you are not alone. But you have just shared a story where you actually were, in fact, alone. You were in solitary. I'm interested to press more into this because I think in general, community is important. I think in general, people recognizing the ways that they might avoid connecting with others, we've got to name those moments and address that. But scripture is filled with examples of folks who actually ended up being in their own forms of solitary. I think so many of the prophets are a great example of that. Because of the invitation God gave them, oftentimes they would end up being alone. Sometimes to the point of just, man, I just, God, I am weak. I am, and God would sustain them, but they were alone. And so this idea of solitary and being able to connect with God when you are alone, I think is a powerful thing that we haven't touched on in this series. And so tell me more about that, how God met you in that solitude. Brother, this is so important. I need your audience to get this no matter what age. Okay. I need them to get this because there were certain things that happened in that year of solitary confinement that just radically changed the course of my life. Okay. One of the biggest ones was getting real with God in those moments and saying, Lord, I need you to reveal yourself to me in a supernatural way. Because I cannot give these men around me a Jesus that is being proclaimed by the American church. I can't give these guys a Bible and say, hey, go read your Bible, brother. I know that's good advice, but these men will reject that offhand. But if I could present the Lord Jesus as a risen remedy, really alive, and having sent the Holy Spirit back down to be our comforter and our friend and our leader and our guide, there was no limit to what God could do. I mean, guys would cry out for God on a regular basis, gang members, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I'll give you a couple examples of that because you mentioned a small connection with youth with a mission. I'm so glad you did. Mm -hmm. I haven't told this story, I don't think. Maybe one time I've told it on a recent podcast mm -hmm. and I've probably been on 15 or 20. So this is one of the stories that I usually reserve because of the time frame, but it is so powerful and it's so important. I'm going to tell you what happened, brother. The Lord was speaking to me on a regular basis, the Holy Spirit, almost regularly, almost daily. Sometimes he would give me a name during a dream. I would get up and write that name down. I'd pass it to my neighbor next door, big skinhead, tattoos everywhere, because it was happening so frequently that I wanted that point of verification when that person arrived whose name was on that paper. So I have a really good story about a guy coming into the unit, being a gang member, and me hollering down and asking his name and him saying his name back, <laughs> his nickname. And then I asked him, no, what's your real name? And when he said his real name, which was not like John or Stephen or Paul, a common American name, right. he said Fernando. And that was the name that was on that paper. OK, <laughs> so that guy ended up getting born again because it just blew his mind. The reality of God. I didn't know the man. There was no way for me to know the man. None of us back there knew him. But I want to give you an example for youth with a mission. OK, Lauren Cunningham. So I'm laying on my bed where I would spend most of my day locked up in this solitary confinement. I would either lay on my bed, reading the Bible, reading the most powerful Christian books that I could get my hands on or pacing back and forth in the cell in prayer. OK, usually I would try to pray for an hour at a time simultaneously and then maybe take a break. But sometimes I may just read one chapter of the Bible and just pray over that chapter and tell the Lord I need deep revelation. So probably six or seven months into that stretch, I had a dream. Same as the dreams when the Lord would give me people's names. And in the dream, the Lord gave me John 11. So in the dream, I'm communicating with the Lord. Now, in every dream that I've ever had with Jesus in it, I was never able to see his face. Mm -hmm. I don't know how people say they saw Jesus's face. He never let me see his face, but he always let me hear the words coming out of his mouth. And I said, Lord, John chapter 11. And he said, John chapter 11. I said, OK, Lord. So I turned, write it down, go back to sleep. I wake up in the morning and pull my Bible out. John chapter 11. It's the story of Lazarus being raised from the grave. You know, everybody knows that story. And as I'm reading that, the Lord is speaking to me and he's letting me know John chapter 11. I'm like, John chapter 11, Lord, I know this chapter like the back of my hand. At this time, I'd probably read eight or 10 different versions of the Bible back and forth, front and back. And so I said, OK, Lord. So I'm laying there and I reach over and I grab the book that I was currently reading, which was a book by Lauren Cunningham about how he founded Youth with a Mission. Mm -hmm. As I open it up, it's the story about where he had been on a six day fast. And, you know, he was talking in there about going on a fast and seeing a ship and those type of things. And one of his wife's friends calls and says, hey, Jesus gave me a dream and he wanted me to tell you John chapter 11. And they were like, what do you mean? He said, Jesus said that he could have healed Lazarus, 
but he didn't. He went ahead and let him die because he wanted to resurrect him. Brother, I'm telling you, the Lord spoke to me so clearly and said, I didn't bring you back here to heal you. Mm. I brought you back here to resurrect you. You are going to leave this as a resurrected man. And it was just awesome. I mean, it was awesome. And without those little moments right there that continuously were happening, I wouldn't be the man that I am today for the Lord Jesus. You know, my testimony is just going all across the world because of moments like that. And, you know, the impact that those things had on my life. It's awesome, brother. Yeah. Well, let's press that a little more because I think people want healing, right? There's a hard situation. There's an infirmity. There's something and they want that to be fixed. When you say there's a difference between healing and resurrection, what does that mean for you? What is the difference? Okay. In the church in America, which again, I wasn't familiar with this and having spent almost 20 years straight in prison, my exposure to the church in America is about nine months long. Mm -hmm. So there's going to be a lot better experts than me. But I noticed some things in the church that I said, oh no, you know, we've turned this into something else. This is kind of like, I'm not even sure what this is, but the power of God appears to be absent. Okay. Mm -hmm. But we do quote a lot, 2 Corinthians 5.17, that if any man is in Christ, you know, he's a new creation and so on and so forth. But what exactly does that mean? Sometimes when we come to the Lord, we're bringing a tremendous amount of our old self with us and our old baggage that kind of has to be chipped away and knocked off. And it's continuously trying to come back into our life. And the enemy knows that, you know what I mean? And he's going to constantly bring those reminders to us and try to put that back in our life. But there's a level in Jesus where you can actually die to self, okay? And the New Testament talks about that. And when you do that, brother, you are raised again with Jesus, just like we talk about a little bit in baptism, you know what I mean? And I'm telling you right now, it is a spiritual thing. This is not a physical thing like being baptized in water. This is an absolute spiritual thing where when you come out of this and you look at the way that you used to be, you can barely recognize that man. The change is so radical. Now, a lot of discussion about that, but how do we get there? And I'm going to tell you how I got there, and I'm going to tell you how some of society's worst got there, because I saw it with my own eyes. Mm -hmm. It was through fasting. And this is probably the least embraced subject that I've talked about since I've been out, because it's hard. You know what I mean? Fasting mm -hmm. is hard, and people don't want to hear about it. When you're on social media, you know, 60% of the people on my Facebook are taking pictures of steaks. You know what I mean? And, and these are good Christian people. And they're taking pictures of their meals and their food. And, I'm, you know, it's awesome to be blessed and to celebrate that. There's a time in your life, in your Christian walk, where you've got to decide, are you going to get serious about the Lord or not? You know what I mean? And I'm talking about serious to the level where you can be so full of God that you can bless all those around you. That the Holy Spirit in you is contagious on others and they can feel that. I wouldn't even want to tell you the amount of people that I talk to nowadays as a prisoner, as a man that was considered a career offender by the government, that I talk to about the Lord or about the mysteries of God or about the power of the Holy Spirit, that they just stop me and say, brother, I've got goosebumps all over my body. It's super affecting me, the words that are coming out of your mouth, even though I've heard these words before. That's just the Holy Spirit in you. So what I would do in prison, in solitary confinement, is I was talking to these men about the Lord and doing the Q&A and getting their answers. And they had to respect me because they knew I used to be a gangster. I wasn't a guy that came to prison and got saved because I was scared. I was a bad guy in prison. You know what I mean? When I first got there, I was a gang member, all types of stuff. So as we would go along in that vein, and I would be able to talk to them and explain to them that Jesus is alive, that the words in that book are true. And this is why, and this is the evidence of it. Get them thinking about that and then get them reading powerful spiritual books by some of the most powerful men and women of God. A book by Lauren Cunningham or The Cross and the Switchblade by David Wilkerson or any books by John G. Lake or Smith Wigglesworth or Mariah Woodworth Eder or Catherine Kuhlman. Those type of super spiritual hunger books that make you spiritually hungry when you're hearing about the power of God, they would want some of that. You could get them born again. You could get them to the cross. But then I would take them and convince them, brother, there's a life beyond the cross. Mm -hmm. If Jesus intended everybody to just go to the cross and get born again and stay there, he would have never sent the Holy Spirit back down. Then we would begin Holy Spirit conversations. We talk about receiving the baptism in the Holy Spirit and we talk about fasting. There's something about praying on an empty stomach, bro. That is why I believe John Wesley would have anybody that he was going to ordain. He said, look, at least twice a week, you got to fast till at least 4 p.m. OK, there is something about praying on an empty stomach. So these men that are in solitary confinement with me, the highlight of their day is a meal. 
because we're not buying food on commissary, only peanuts, bro. So for an entire year when I wasn't fasting, the only little bit of food that I would get that would be like some type of treat would be peanuts. I still have a problem eating peanuts. Mm. You know what I mean? To this day, I could get them to fast. They would work their way up to it. Sometimes it'd be an 18 hour fast. They might work their way up to a 24 hour fast. If they could get to a 30 hour or a 48 hour fast where they just spent that time in concentration, reading their Bible and praying, the results were radical. Mm. The results were so radical that two men back there received the baptism of the Holy Spirit and didn't even know what they had. They literally wrote it down on paper, slid the paper down the hallway to my cell because we didn't have contact with each other. I'd pull the paper in my cell known as a kite in prison. And it would say, listen, I need to talk to you. I need to talk to you. I've been praying for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I've been down here fasting. I have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I don't know what's going on, brother. I'm down here praying in tongues. It's the greatest, it's like, it's just the greatest time of my life. And God has come into this extremely dark place. So the results were so incredible, brother. Paul, I'm going to tell you what, that more than once men asked me before they left, before they were transferred out of there and put on the airlift like Con Air to be transferred across the country, they would ask me, Steve, what do I do now? Hmm. Now, what am I going to do? Because I'm being transferred out of this safe environment. They came to that environment as a prisoner, as a convict, as some of America's worst. They got back there. And over the course of months and months, they got born again and full of God. Now they're being transferred back to another prison. And they're asking me a legitimate question. What am I going to do? And I would tell them, brother, don't go to the chapel in the prison because most of the time that's fake in there. You know what I mean? Pray. Ask the Lord to show you the two or three real guys in there that really are hungry for him, that are really in love with Jesus, and he'll make your paths cross. And that would be my advice to them because the Lord had done that with me over and over and over in various prisons. Brother, I have a story where a stranger walked up to me one time in 2005 and said, hey, uh, I want to sow into your ministry. I said, I think you're confused about me. I don't have a ministry. I had just gotten out of the hole for fighting. Actually, I had gotten a fight while sitting on my bed reading the Bible. So I went to the hole for like 30 days. And this old Puerto Rican man that's from a different part of the world than I am, he just told me, he said, I don't care about you getting in a fight or being in the hole. God doesn't care about it. And it doesn't matter what you say because the Lord already spoke to me about it and the books are on the way. The books are on the way. That was 17 years ago. This guy's still my friend. You know what I mean? He's still my friend today. So it's a supernatural Jesus, man. It is a supernatural walk with Jesus in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. I know Lauren Cunningham would say that. David Wilkerson, if he was still here, he would say that. That's what it's intended to be, bro. Yeah. And what's so hard is, one, we don't often realize that because we think the world is how we see it. And we think the world is how we understand it. And we think we are as we understand ourselves. And we think others are as we understand them. So a lot of people would look at you and make a broad sweep of criminal. And they might be right about certain things, but not know the supernatural things that are there, the value that God sees, the purpose, the intentionality, like that man who didn't know you, but came up and said, nope, there's a ministry in there. And you didn't even realize it, right? Like, we just do not have eyes to see. We don't have ears to hear. And we become so convinced. You know, I think what's so heartbreaking in that is there are invitations that God is giving that we can constantly miss because in our human thinking, we'll say, well, I can't live without food. So fasting, I can't really do fasting, maybe occasionally. But Jesus is like, no, 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 man doesn't live on bread alone. Like Jesus understood there's actually a deeper way that the body can actually function and thrive, even if it's not getting food for 40 days. You know, there'll be people that will say, well, I, I need to avoid suffering because suffering is hard and bad. And, you know, you already talked about how the period that should have been the worst suffering became one of the most beautiful things, right? We would avoid solitary. We would avoid all these things. And the reality is, as you're talking, I think without realizing it, what we're actually avoiding is that death you talked about. It's like this self-defense mechanism that's in us. There's something spiritual that is aware that in order for us to get to that full life, something needs to die. And there are things within us that will keep us from seeing and hearing those things as a way to protect ourselves from that death. But what you're inviting us to is to embrace that invitation to die to self because we'll never find fullness. I mean, you talked about it. You were living the life that at a time you thought was the life to live. And you look back on that now and you're like, man, that doesn't even come close to comparing to what I'm experiencing within God right now. The Apostle Paul says it too. He's like, I was the best of the best, the top of the top, and all that's rubbish compared to knowing Christ. So how do we get to this point where we're at least willing to consider this idea of death of self 
when there's so many defense mechanisms and lies and deceptions keeping us from seeing that? Here's what I believe that it is. I believe that it is a reality of the supernatural. If a person believes the Bible, and I would say that probably 90% of Christians say, you know what, I believe the Bible. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you may have to qualify that because there's maybe a certain group that says, well, I believe it, but I believe that some things maybe aren't for right now or whatever. And I don't want to get into that debate about like gifts and the Holy Spirit and things like that. But I will tell you this. If a person is hungry for the reality of the supernatural in their life, if they're tired of going to church and hearing about the Holy Spirit and somebody saying, man, we have to let the Holy Spirit guide us. And you'll hear the name of Jesus dropped and you'll hear the Holy Spirit drop. But even though you're sitting in the pews and you're thinking, yes, brother, amen, because you know it's true because it's in the word. You're thinking, yeah, what does that really mean? But when you have a supernatural encounter with Jesus, a supernatural encounter with the Holy Spirit, you understand what the fear of the Lord means in the Bible because it puts you in awe. Mm-hmm. The first time that it happened, it put me in such awe that I was like, oh, brother, this is real. Okay, the first actual completely supernatural experience I had with God was when I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And after that happened, maybe five minutes later, after being in my cell and just, you know, praying in tongues for like five minutes. This was in 2004. The first words I said in English, brother, I pointed at the ceiling and I said, Jesus, I knew you was there. (laughs) That was the revelation. The Holy Spirit's always going to testify of Jesus. He's always going to elevate Jesus. But I did know Jesus was there because I believed it. I was saved. I'd been saved for about a year and a half. But did I know that I know that I know? Well, when I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I did. But there's another level and there's a constant level because there's exceedingly growing faith, Mm -hmm. like Smith Wigglesworth said. So in 2017, when I took it to the next level and God was leading me to take it to the next level through the fasting, those type of experiences that I'd maybe had one or two or three in my Christian walk started to happen almost every day. They started to happen so often that that same friend from 2005 that sewed into my Christian ministry, I was writing him letters. We could only write letters with these little three-inch rubber pins that you couldn't hurt anybody with. Mm. And I wrote him, I said, brother, God's doing incredible things back here. You know, and I'm really fasting now and I'm really praying a lot in the spirit. And God's doing so many incredible things that on all the other tiers back here is complete madness and men are killing themselves. And on the tier that I'm on, we're having Bible study. I've got officers in the prison walking up to my cell bars, taking their hat off, putting their head up to the bars and asking me to lay my hands on their head and pray for them Mm. in prison, brother, Mm -hmm. as an inmate in America. Mm -hmm. And he's like, "Okay, I want you to start writing these things down. And I said, I'm not going to do it. He said, please write a book about what's going on. Write a book about your life. I said, I'm not going to do it, brother. I'm too busy with the Lord. I'm too busy. God's doing things. Guys are getting saved. So this has taken place over the course of a month or two because our letter, our correspondence is always about two weeks delayed. Mm-hmm. And he wrote me and said, listen, if you don't do it for anything else, do it for your children. They don't know you because they're going to be adults when you get out of prison. And this will explain your life to them and how you ended up where you are. So I prayed about it. I felt like God was on me a little bit about it. So I sat down one morning with some paper and a pen and I was determined I was going to start writing about my life from the very first moment of my life. And I was going to take it into the moment that I was in right now in solitary confinement. And I wanted to talk about everything that God was doing back there and all the supernatural and the men that were getting born again and all that. Mm -hmm. And as I started the book and wrote the first chapter, I went back to the first memory of my life, which was being transported from Virginia to Illinois in the backseat of a car with a bunch of strangers that were taking me out of foster care to live in Illinois. And they were trying to engage me to say my ABCs. Mm -hmm. The first couple sentences of that chapter is I was in the back of a car saying my ABCs. And this is how I remember my life started. I took it five or six pages. I set it up on the shelf. My buddy that had been trying to encourage me to write the book, who was in Florida. Now I'm in prison in Illinois. He's a free man in Florida. He had already sent me a letter. I got it that next day and I opened it up and he said, listen, bro, I don't know why God's put this on my heart. I was with you 15 years ago. I know the type of man of God that you are. I know you know the Bible back and forth. I know what you're doing right now, but God has put it on my heart. So I have to do it. And he wants me to talk to you about the ABCs of the Christian faith. So I said, okay, Lord, you want me to write this book? I'll write it. So I wrote it. I wrote it all out with scrap papers with a three inch pen. And I wrote everything about the supernatural, all that was going on for that year. And I sent it out to him four or five pages at a time. When I got out of federal prison five years later, he still had it. So I have that original manuscript now, you know what I mean? I'm just in the process trying to edit it. But when I let people read like a chapter or two, it is effective. It's an effective ministry tool. It's working really well. I love the way that you put it maybe 10, 15 minutes ago, 
You talked about how it's very natural for us when somebody's in a hard place, when somebody doesn't see God yet, when somebody's wrestling with suffering to just say, well, go read the Bible <laughs> or give a platitude. And like you noted, it's not bad for someone to read the Bible, but we're seeing it in a very human way. And you recognized in that moment that what they needed was not to be told to go do something, but they needed to have an experience with the risen remedy is the way that you worded it. Something supernatural. It's a real Jesus, not just words, but there's this real Jesus who is still speaking those words. I think there's this beautiful invitation that God is giving us that we miss because when we look at our suffering, that's all we see. Actually, I would say it's not even all we see. We see the suffering, but also we're projecting out this hypothetical life that we should have instead. The hypothetical life that's devoid of any hardship. The hypothetical life where everything's working out good. And so we're seeing that in our imagination and we're seeing our suffering before us. And that's all we can see. And meanwhile, what we're actually supposed to see is Jesus front and center with a handout, extending an invitation to die to self and have a new life. But we'll spend so much of our time and effort and energy avoiding it, avoiding the suffering, but avoiding Jesus as a result. And meanwhile, you know, as you're talking, it's making me think of the Apostle Paul, who is also one who spent time in prison, and how often people saw that as a suffering, a hardship to be avoided. And they lamented him being in prison. They were praying that he would be able to get out of prison. And he's like, you have no idea the ministry that's happening with me <laughs> locked up right now. You have no idea the people that I'm able to access. You have no idea the people who are now going out in my place to speak truth because I'm in here. Like God is working through my imprisonment. And this is the thing that we can't catch. We are so confident we know how the world works that when Jesus is inviting us into something unconventional, something foolish, something supernatural, we'll say, no, 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 because we're convinced we are right. But man, I love hearing everything that you're sharing because what you're demonstrating is it didn't matter whether you believed that you had a ministry. It didn't matter whether you were free or locked up. It didn't matter any of these things. It mattered, were you willing to take a simple first step? And so I want to ask that question because you've been talking about the supernatural. You've been talking about the Holy Spirit. You've been talking about things that for someone who isn't quite there or hasn't had any experience with that or has had a negative experience can seem like a significant barrier, sure. right? It can seem like I have no idea how to even take a first step into this whole idea of supernatural. But that's what you've been saying is like, how can we take this simple first step? So what is a simple first step that somebody can take to engage this idea of the supernatural or the Holy Spirit? Great question. Great, great, great question. Let me say real quick as I lead into that, when God takes you through something, or when you voluntarily go through something, or maybe you're just going through something you didn't volunteer for that you would consider suffering. It's not comfortable, okay? He's not putting you there forever. You know, when he's refining you as gold, he's taking you up out of there and he's expecting you to go on and to carry whatever work that he did in you that was so effective that you went through that. He's not leaving you there to stay. He's bringing you up out of there as just this shining light on a hill that is going to just explode into everybody because of what you went through. Like carriers, possessors of the Holy Spirit. That's who we are. It's kind of our job to carry that around with us. So for somebody that's not there yet and they say, man, this sounds kind of radical, but you know, who's going to have the opportunity to fast like that or spend a year with God? You can't do that. Here's how it starts right here. I promise you, this is extremely important, especially in modern countries. Okay. People that are in non-modern countries seem to have this experience more often than we do. You can go to a mirror. You can get by yourself. Okay. But you got to get comfortable being alone with God. This may only take 15 minutes and you have to say, Am I willing to pay the cost? Mm. You have to have a legitimate conversation with the Lord Jesus. And you have to say, Lord Jesus, I believe that maybe this is what you are requiring. There's nothing that I have, brother, that any other person listening cannot have. There's nothing that Smith Wigglesworth had. There's nothing that John G. Lake had. There's nothing that Catherine Kuhlman had that anybody listening to this cannot have. Mm -hmm. Perhaps not in that degree. I mean, those people had a super anointing on them, but you can have it. You can walk around the power of the Holy Spirit, but there is a cost attached. Mm -hmm. Now, here's something beautiful. God says the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. So if you do pay that cost, you count the cost and you pay it, and God gifts you with something to help others around you, he won't take it back. Mm -hmm. 
he's got you. He's given you something awesome. He's expecting you to use it. Now, if you take it and bury it in the ground, you know you're doing bad. He expects you to take it and multiply it, but he's still giving it to you. You know what I mean? So I would get with God and I'd say, okay, Lord, am I willing to pay this price that you're requiring of me? I believe that the price may be what the men in the Bible are describing. I know Paul talked about fasting. You know what I mean? I know that they were doing that. I know Jesus talked about when the bridegroom's taken away, there will be a time for fasting. I know when we look at every powerful, super powerful man and woman of God in our recent history, the last hundred years, they all had at least one six or seven day fast. I think Lauren Cunningham's might have been six days when he went into the basement to try to find clarity on the vision for youth with a mission. David Wilkerson, John G. Lake had a six or seven day fast, but it's not like it was required of them to where it would kill them. God's not going to let that happen to you. I'll give you an example. The first time I did a seven day fast, I thought it was going to kill me. Hmm. I'm already a skinny guy. So it just hurt me. By day four or five, I could feel my ribs like in my back but I was determined to make it. I needed to pay that cost. I needed to know for myself that I was willing to do it, that God was real, that reality was that real to me. I needed to know that for myself. Okay. Six months later, when I did another seven day fast, I told the Lord to please put his grace on me that I would not have to suffer that much because it hurts my body so bad. And brother, I'm going to tell you right now, this is 100%. You can take it to the bank. Seven days after that fast, I got on the floor in that prison cell and did 75 push-ups straight <laughs> because God's grace was on me tremendously. I had asked him for that. Mm -hmm. And so you're not going to be taken beyond something that you can endure. And here's another responsibility that we have as Christians. I believe this. I don't know that it's necessarily biblical, but I believe this. If you're a healthy Christian, like I'm a healthy 46-year-old man, there are people in the church that love Jesus with all their heart, but for various reasons, health reasons, they can't fast. Mm -hmm. You have a responsibility to stand in the gap for that person, say, Lord, I'm going to fast today for this specific reason, and I'm going to fast for sister you know, so-and-so or brother so-and-so because they can't fast right now, Lord. I'm giving this to you, Lord. I'm offering you something. I'm offering my body as a living sacrifice. You know what I mean? I'm willing to lay it on the altar, Lord. Pour your Holy Spirit out in me deeper, more, more, Lord. I'm asking for gifts. I'm asking for you to give me clarity so that I can help others around me, not for selfish gain, so that I can present the risen Jesus to the people around me in an effective way. Think about being so full of God like Peter was that when you speak these words of God, even as an uneducated man, people are crying out. What do I got to do to get saved? You know what I mean? Absolutely, bro. So start like that. I would recommend for a person that says, okay, I'd like a little bit of that. I'd like more of the Holy Spirit. I'd like words of knowledge and words of wisdom. I'd like to pray for the sick and see him get healed. I'd like to help others. Get with God. Talk to the Lord Jesus and say, Lord, show me what I need to do to pay the cost. Get serious with yourself. Can I even do it? Will I count the cost? Go into this war, like Jesus said. You know what I mean? He talked about that a little bit. People leave those verses out because they're not as rich as other verses that might be in the word, like, you know, the first chapter of John, which is just super rich with mm -hmm. revelation. But Jesus said, which man is going to go to war and not count before he goes in there? You know what I mean? What's going on in there? You kind of have to count the cost. Say, am I willing to pay the cost for this? Don't dabble. Don't dabble in it because I'm going to tell you right now, I had a lot of experience with men that were involved in Santeria, that were Santeria priests, which is essentially devil worship. I was put in the cell with devil worshipers that told me they were getting vibrations in their body from the spirit that was in me. They didn't even know me. Mm. If a person was going to press into that level with God, I would get serious about it because the people that are working for the other side, it's nothing for a devil worshiper, a person that's involved in voodoo that has experienced levels of the supernatural and demonic end. It's nothing for them to fast for a week. Mm. Nothing. They will go lay on a grave in a graveyard, brother. They will not break their fast at midnight. They won't come out of there for seven days for a different type of power. Mm -hmm. So as a member of the true king, Jesus, the king, the body of Christ. Don't start with a week. I'm not telling anybody that. OK, and we seem like we've got on this fasting thing. And like you said, maybe God was going to lead us down a different path. Give the Lord a meal. Mm -hmm. It's hard in America, man. We've been trained our whole life to eat three square meals a day. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So give the Lord a meal. Say, you know what, Lord, I'm going to skip lunch today. Yeah. And I'm going to spend that time with you, Lord. I'm just going to pray there. It's going to be hard. You're going to be hungry by evening. But then maybe the next time you fast, you say, Lord, today I'm going to skip breakfast and lunch. And if you think about that, the last meal you had was dinner last night. So without even realizing it, you fasted for 18 hours. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're on your way yeah. and start setting some milestones there and ask the Lord, give me something, please. 
I need something specific right here. Give me a word for my brother Paul. Or Lord, please start to give me wisdom or revelation into your word. Mm -hmm. You know, things like that. Yeah. When I want people to catch to that, what you're not talking about is like, this is some kind of a magic cheat code kind of a thing that if you don't eat, then something magical will happen. What you're talking about is making active choices to choose God. Your mind is saying, well, I know how hungry I get, or I know how much I need to eat, but I'm going to choose God. I know what I know, but I'm going to choose God. I know what's going to happen, but I'm going to choose God. Like this is the invitation that you're putting out there that God is giving to us is no matter what I understand, no matter what I know, I'm going to choose God because here's what's wild. You referenced a passage that I actually pulled up on my phone so that I would have ready. And it's the cost of discipleship passage. It's in Luke 14, starting in verse 25. And I'm not going to read all of it now, but I would encourage people to read it. But here's what I love about this passage. Jesus does get into this whole thing of if somebody is building a tower, aren't they going to count the cost, make sure that they have enough to complete it? And if somebody's going to go to war, aren't they going to count the cost, make sure they have enough men? And if they don't have enough to win, they're going to go send a delegation. Aren't they going to do this? In our human minds, what we think Jesus is saying is count the cost. And if you can't do it, then don't do it. But that's not what he's saying. He's tapping into our human logic, but it's sandwiched. It's sandwiched between two things. Verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Then he gets into those human logic thinking things. And then the other part of the sandwich is at the end of this passage. And it says, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And here's what I love about what Jesus is doing here is in those scenarios of the tower and the army, human logic says you count the cost. And if you can't do it, don't move forward. But what Jesus is saying is, hey, count the cost. And guess what? The cost is too much for you to hate everyone you love. It's too much for you to hate your own life. It's too much for you. To renounce everything, that's too much. The cost is too great. Now, will you follow me? This is the invitation. I recognize that the cost is too much, and yet I choose God. That's awesome. And the good news is we can all do that with whoever we are, wherever we are, whatever's going on. Like you noted, we don't have to be like the people that we look up to on a spiritual level. We don't have to be them. We have to say, well, right now, what am I willing to say the cost is too much, but God, I choose you? And like you said, maybe it's a meal. It's about this active choice of choosing God, even when you know the cost is too much. Let's say somebody's listening. And right now they are in that heavy, heavy season. Maybe somehow they're listening and they're currently locked up and they're feeling disconnected. But somehow they're able to hear your voice right now. If you could talk to somebody who's sitting in that space of suffering, what would you want to say to them? There's a verse in the Bible that talks about joy unspeakable. Joy unspeakable. Imagine that for a moment where you're so full of joy. This is beyond the level of happiness. You're so full of joy that you could be in the worst place that in the natural you would say that a person could be. And you have tears in your eyes from joy. And how do you get there? Mm -hmm. If you're in that terrible place that nothing's right, everything seems bad, there's stress, there's angst, there's worry. You got to get close to God. You've got to talk to God about it. Take it to the Lord Jesus. And there's a prayer that I used to tell guys that they could pray. I would call it like the doubter's prayer and say, listen, do this, brother, because the Bible says, I think it's Revelation 3.20, that Jesus is at the door. Okay. He's standing at the door of your life, not in some figurative mindset in the spiritual realm. If you open that door and say, Lord Jesus, come in, he promises to do that. So I would tell a person to get along with the Lord and say, Lord, you see what I'm carrying right now. You see where I'm at right now. I need this, Lord. I need you, Jesus, in my heart. Do that. Confess that. Say, Lord, please, I believe it. I believe that you're the son of God. I believe that you rose from the dead for me. I'm asking you to please come into my heart, Lord. I need that joy unspeakable. I need you in my life. You know what I mean? And he will. Mm -hmm. He promises to do it. So if he doesn't do it, he's going against his word. So he's coming in. You know what I mean? And now I would begin to develop that from there because a lot of times when that happens, the light of God will just shake that person. They'll get up off their knees and they'll just be so lit up with God. You just be like, whoa, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? What happened? Other times, like when I got born again, I didn't feel anything for three weeks. And then a little still small voice spoke to me and said, tomorrow 
you're going to start reading the Bible and you're not going to eat. So that's kind of how my walk with God started. You know what I mean? And that was way back in 2003. But I would definitely say, look, if you're in that place, man, of loneliness, you're not comfortable being lonely. You know, it feels unnatural. You're not close to God. Get about five minutes. Steal five minutes out of your day and talk to the Lord and say, Lord, please, I'm asking you, please come into my heart, Lord. I need you. I need that joy unspeakable. I need you to reveal yourself to me. You give that to me, Lord, and I promise that I will take that joy and I will try to give it to others. I will try to give it to others. And you know as well as I do, Paul, that when you do receive that, the greatest joy that you can ever have is giving that to somebody else. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That's like the ultimate. If I can give that to somebody else and I can talk to somebody else about the Lord or somebody gives some feedback and says, man, that changed my life. It changed the course of my walk with Jesus. And now I'm much closer to the Lord. I'm able to get into my word better. I'm hearing from the Holy Spirit, stuff like that. That's it. I mean, that is awesome. You know, within this is the unexpected gift of suffering. You know, we talked earlier about how we have these self-defense mechanisms that are protecting our lives, protecting our reputation, protecting our thoughts, protecting our dreams, protecting all these things. You noted it when you were in solitary, you were able to fast and spend time in the word and pray in ways that if you were just living a normal life, you wouldn't have done. You might not have been able to functionally do it, but also you might not have even thought about doing it because you're living your life. And you know, it's funny. There are many times that I'll ask somebody how I can pray for them and they'll say, oh, I'm good. Right. It's this idea that we can get to a nice neutral place in life. But when you are in the midst of suffering, man, all that ends up getting thrown out the window. I mean, ultimately, you can get to a place where you feel like, well, I've got nothing else to lose. <laughs> right. You stop trying to protect things because you've lost them or you stop trying to protect things because you don't know that you can protect them. Suffering can actually bypass these self-defense mechanisms. And allow us to be able to say, well, what have I got to lose? This God thing has seemed crazy to me. This supernatural stuff has seemed kind of freaky to me. But you know, what have I got to lose? Because I feel like I'm at the end of myself. Yeah. And then like you said, Jesus is like, hey, I've been knocking at the door just waiting for you to let me in. Man, I think it's just really beautiful to hear like even in your story. And it's funny that we think when we come into a relationship with God that everything will be fine. But you came to know God, what was it, 2003? Fast forward all the way to 2017, and you're talking about solitary. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. It's it's wild. Right? And, and experiencing God in a deeper way. And so what we're talking about is a journey. And I love that you noted that it's this ongoing, increasing thing. You thought you knew God, but then two years later, five years later, you suddenly discover something deeper about him. Everything that you know about God right now, five, 10, 15 years from now, you're going to look back and be like, oh man, God was so much bigger than I realized. Yes. And that's the invitation for all of us. Absolutely. Man. Paul, I really believe, I don't say stuff like this. You've probably heard some of my podcast interviews and stuff like that, but I really believe the Holy Spirit just spoke to me right mm -hmm. now without question. I didn't miss God right here. So anybody out there that is in that spot of suffering, that spot of darkness, loneliness, despair, if you're by yourself, sing a song to the Lord. I don't care what song it is. If it's not a Christian song, it doesn't have to be a song that you know. Make up a song right now. You don't feel like singing. You don't want to sing. Get up wherever you're at right now and say, Lord, I just want to sing. You could make up a song that says, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I love you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for blessing me. Okay, I just made that up right now. Mm -hmm. Do that. It's biblical. It's biblical. The word says, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. It's going to uplift you. It's going to do something to your spirit man inside of you. Paul and Silas were in prison, ripped open, bodies ripped open with whips, brother, and they just started singing a song. I'm telling you, the Lord wants you to do it right now. If you're on your couch, you're on your bed, get up and sing just a little song to Jesus. You'll probably start crying, but I bet you when you're done, you're going to be full of joy. The Lord will not let that be done in vain. I guarantee you the Holy Spirit will show up on the scene. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And I'll push it even further. There may be somebody listening that was feeling a little something in them when you said that. And then there's a self-defense mechanisms coming in. And they're like, maybe that's not for me. Or maybe this is nothing. Or I'll do it after the episode. So I want to double down and say, you have my permission to stop this episode right now. You could come back to it later. But you can push pause right now and do it. Because what you and I have already talked about, Stephen, is there is simple steps that we can take. Absolutely. Like there's this simple step forward. And this, for someone, could be a little simple step. And what's the worst that could happen? You're just 
in your room singing a song, right? Yeah. <laughs> the cost isn't too much here, but the reward, if this is an invitation that the Holy Spirit has given you and you decide, you know what, I'm going to push pause, I'm going to sing, man, what the Spirit could do in that moment could be more powerful than you expect. So, oh, yeah. All the time. Doubling down on that, man. For those of you coming back after pausing <laughs> and singing this song, you know, Steve, if, if there's somebody that really appreciates what you're saying, they want to learn more about you and what you're doing, what could that look like? Okay, so this is wild. All right, this is part of what is encapsulating me. God gave me a dream in 2020 because God knows everything. Mm -hmm. He knew I was going to be coming out of prison after all these years, and he showed me in the dream some scriptures on a wall that were changing. I woke up in the morning. I told the Lord, I said, I can see what you showed me, Lord, but I don't understand what the dream means. I don't understand what that is or how that would work. And the very next night he gave me another dream and he showed me exactly how it would work and how to do it. So I kept it in my heart for two years. And when I got released, I started to develop that idea, developed it into potentially a product, uh, then developed a prototype. And now we have the finished version and, you know, we're just sending them out just everywhere. Let's see, three days ago, I sent one to somebody that bought one in Maryland. Mm -hmm. Somebody bought one in Georgia. Somebody got one in Florida. And what they are is they're scripture frames. They are digital scripture frames that are decorative that people can put in their house or we got small ones they can put on their desk or shelf. And it just automatically changes the scripture every day. Mm. But the way that I've designed it is that it could also automatically change the scripture once an hour. The scriptures that are in there are the ones that I picked. I have some Psalms in there and I have some faith filled scriptures and some promises from God. So it's a new inspirational scripture every day or as often as you'd like. You don't have to have internet. You don't have to have Wi-Fi. It's just plug and play. And all that information is on my website, which is JesusSpeaksLLC.com. The LLC stands for Life, Liberty, and Christianity. So people go there. They can find out more information about me or about my book or my life. But the purpose of everything I do is not to sell something. These scripture frames are selling. People love them and they're beautiful. My message has got to be a message of hope, but it's also got to be a message of God's supernatural ability to change a life, to change a circumstance so radically around that you're literally unrecognizable to yourself when you come up out of it, a resurrected man, like from the Lauren Cunningham book. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the website's JesusSpeaksLLC.com. There's a featured news article on there that they can link to where the news did a special on me the day before Thanksgiving, a mm -hmm. couple more podcast episodes. Just, it's good stuff, man. Yeah, good stuff. That's good. And as we close out, is there anything that God's putting on your heart that you feel led to share? I will tell you something about prayer real quick, if that's okay. Yeah. I would recommend, and we don't always do this, but I take this as a model from the Lord Jesus and Mark, is that when I open every prayer, I ask the Lord to please forgive me for my sins, that anybody that I have anything against, I release them because I don't want anything to hinder my prayers. And I believe unforgiveness can do that. And sometimes we can have unforgiveness in our heart and not even know it. Mm. And I think that's why Jesus said, when you stand praying, make sure you forgive anybody you have anything against. And I've read so many testimonies with some of the powerful ministers that we talked about where they couldn't get healed or they couldn't get something from God. And the person would receive a word of knowledge or word of revelation and say, hey, man, there's somebody you haven't forgotten. You know, what about your sister? Or Oh, you're right. Boom. And they go and they forgive that person. They come back and God gives it to them. So I would say, you know, when you pray, make sure you start out your prayer by saying, Lord, please forgive me for my sins. And I forgive anybody that I have anything against, Lord. I release them. Give me your supernatural ability, Lord, please, to forgive them. I forgive them in Jesus' name. I'm asking you to forgive me for my sins in Jesus' name. Then thank them for doing that. Thank you, Lord, for doing that. And then go into your prayer. That's just super duper important in my life. And I think it's important for a lot of people because you know my life. You know what I mean? As a kid, I was abused and beaten and all those things. You've got to forgive those people. You've got to release those people. And sometimes that has to be done supernaturally. You got to ask the Lord for help. You know what I mean? Lord, help me forgive this person. Please, I release them. Now, let me come to you, Jesus, in your name and pray. Why is it that the Holy Spirit is so powerful in the midst of suffering? I want to follow the lead of my pastor, Don Coleman, who you heard at the end of the healing series, and how I approach bringing scripture to this final space. Because I was looking for one good verse 
But what Don's often demonstrated is sometimes you need a whole string of verses to really capture the fullness of what God is communicating. And so I want to hit you with several and invite you to sit with each of them in your own time. 1 Corinthians 6.19 Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. Acts 1.8 But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Acts 2.38 Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.26 In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. John 14, 16, and 17. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Romans 8, 5, and 6. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. And I could keep going. Scripture is rich with examples of how the Spirit can do abundantly more than we could ask or imagine. And this is particularly true in the midst of suffering. And our invitation here is to choose to believe that the Spirit can work. As Romans 8 tells us, our minds are set in and of ourselves. But when we welcome the Spirit, suddenly our minds become set on what the Spirit desires. And it says the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. And in the midst of our suffering, isn't that what we are longing for? We lament the life we feel we've lost, the life we feel we can never gain, and we feel a severe lack of peace. But the Spirit promises life and peace. Even now, even in your hardest situation, even in solitary confinement, Stephen looks back to what should have been the worst season of his life as one of the most spiritually fruitful times. He misses those moments when he could easily go seven days without eating food as a way of showing God his devotion to him. He experienced the Spirit working in him and through him as he would take random names that he knew nothing about, give them to someone else, and that person's life would be transformed. If you hear nothing else, hear this recurring truth that we think we understand, we think we know what is going on and how things should be and what is possible. And Proverbs 14, 12 captures it well. There is a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. In the midst of your suffering, you can think you know what the right or only pathway is. And meanwhile, Jesus is standing at the door and knocking. Jesus has sent a helper to bring wisdom, to bring life, to bring peace. And you don't have to be good enough, strong enough, or even spiritual enough to open the door and accept this gift. You just have to be willing. God could have taken Stephen out of prison years before, in 2003 when he was born again, or 2004 when he was baptized in the Holy Spirit. God could have done that. But he remained like Joseph for years and years and years. Until 2017, Stephen experienced the Spirit working in ways that were abundantly more than he could ask or imagine. Ways that not only transformed him, but transformed the lives of men he couldn't physically see or touch. Men who would then go from that solitary confinement into other prisons and share what they had experienced. In other words, God invited Stephen to remain in that space of solitary confinement because he wanted to do abundantly more, not just for Stephen, but for men in prisons across the nation. And maybe the Spirit wants to work through you in a powerful way as well. Maybe the Spirit is inviting you to trust him now, to invite him now, to let him work now, because your understanding is limited, but his is limitless. And as Stephen pointed out, you can welcome the Spirit right now, whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever your situation. Maybe you avoided singing the song because you thought it was for someone else, but now you're thinking it's for you. Go ahead and sing it now. Maybe it's simply praying to God now and saying, I'm ready and I'm willing. But whatever it is, I want you to know that there is a way that seems right in your mind and God sees something better. He sees life and peace for you. 
and all you have to do is open the door. So I encourage you to do that today. Open the door, welcome the Spirit, and ask yourself, where did you see God? Have you ever wanted to read Revelation but haven't known where to start? Or have you been afraid to read Revelation because of all the ways you've seen it misused? Or maybe you haven't even wanted to touch Revelation but feel like maybe you should since it's part of the Bible? Well, if you're in any of these positions or any other ones, I've got a resource for you. It's called A Journey Through Revelation for the Person Who Doesn't Want to Read Revelation. And here's the thing. The hope for this resource is that it makes the exploration of who God is and what revelation can mean for you accessible, whatever you believe. And this will not be your normal revelation study. It's not going to dive into the historic representations of the imagery or expertly decipher the prophecies. The goal of this is not to tell you what revelation means. It's to explore what it can mean for you. Now, this thing is available for you right now in a few forms. One, you could go to www.wheredidyouseegod.com revelation, and you can find a PDF for free, which you can read on your phone, on your device, or print out. But if you like something that's a little nicer looking, it is also available through Amazon on Kindle and in paperback form. And I prefer paperback, whether you print it or you get the one on Amazon, because this gives you a place to write some things out because you're going to want a place to write things out. Because I really do believe that God wants to speak to you through Revelation, whatever you feel about Revelation, whatever your experience and whatever you think about God. So if you're interested, get it for free, get it for a very, very, very low price. This is not about making money, but about us together exploring how we can see God in the midst of such a difficult and controversial book. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Where Did You See God podcast. And I would love for your stories to be a part of it as well. So there are a number of ways that you can do that. You can check out our Facebook page at Where Did You See God podcast. You can go to anchor.fm slash Where Did You See God, where you can leave a brief voice message at 804-372-3836. I would love to hear your stories. And if the stories you've heard have encouraged you, uh, think of someone else who could be encouraged as well and share it with them. The music you've been listening to is You'll Walk, You'll Run by Urban Doxology. They are a solid group and you will love listening to the rest of the music. So check them out. And as always, as you go through your day, ask yourself, where did you see God?